If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open them to Luke chapter 16. This morning we are considering verses 1 through 13. Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Well, in chapter 15, uh, Jesus had been speaking specifically to the Pharisees, the shepherds of Israel at this time. And now he's turning his attention to speak to his disciples once again, instructing them upon what life in the kingdom should look like, as well as what he is going to do to bring and usher in this glorious kingdom. So Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Please pay careful attention, for this is the word of our God. Well, Jesus also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, this passage is a difficult passage. On first reading, you may be thinking to yourself, what in the world is this about? Its point is not immediately obvious. And furthermore, after some brief consideration, it may seem somewhat perplexing, even troubling, because this dishonest manager seems to be put forward as an example to emulate. And Jesus himself is springboarding off of the master's praise and commendation of this dishonest manager as he seeks to apply it to the lives of his disciples. 
as I was reading this week a little bit on the history of the interpretation of this passage, many commentators have noted the difficulty of this parable. Uh, one commentator said this, parable is the prince among difficult parables. Or another one said that this is a notorious puzzle. Now, of course, we are not going to be uncovering, unturning every rock and looking at every question and thread in this, in this passage or parable. However, I do want to remind you that all of Scripture is profitable for faith and life. Meaning we should expect every Scripture passage that we read to either be a call to action or a call to faith or both. That is to say, we should expect every passage to be instructive about what life in God's kingdom should look like in terms of our ethics, or it should be a call to faith in the one who has brought forth this glorious kingdom into this present age. Thus, this morning, what I'd like to do is just walk through this passage and this parable and looking at both of those aspects, how this is a call to action and this is a call to faith, a call for us to believe. We'll see that this parable begins with reference to uh, this parable, a parable in which there's a rich man who had a manager who managed his wealth and estate. And there, there was a report that came to this rich man that the manager had mismanaged the, his master's wealth. And this charge is brought forth to the master, and the master brings in the manager and calls him to account and gives him the boot, so to speak. Fires him. Consequently, this manager, who may have been either a slave or a freed man, we don't know exactly, but this would have been a privileged position, a position that he would not have wanted to lose. Thus, this, this manager is then thinking, well, what, what should I do? He's going to be essentially out in the street. And we're given a glimpse into his eternal, internal processing. And you'll see that he, he begins thinking to himself, well, I could do manual labor. We don't know exactly why he writes this off the table. Either he was physically unable to manually work or he thought it was beneath him. He who was uh, presently doing a white-collar job didn't want to move into a blue-collar vocation. Regardless, he puts that off the table as not being a viable option. He also says that he can't beg. If you remember that this culture was an honor-shame culture, meaning that uh, shame was really the, the worst thing that one could experience, and begging was the height of all shame. And so begging was definitely not an option. Well, this manager then thinks of an idea. In verses 4 through 7, we are uh, given a glance into this somewhat strategic plan of this manager. He decides, as he's on his way out, to call a number of his master's debtors and reduce the debt. To gain favor with these men so that his future self may be benefited. He's thinking, if I pat their back, then once I'm out of work and don't have a place to sleep, they'll pat mine. I'll have lodging and employment. Now, one of the, the main interpretive difficulties of this passage is, how was this man dishonest or corrupt? And the two main options before us is, was this manager's dishonesty and corruption 
primarily based on the accusations that were brought forth in verse 1 and not verses 4 through 7. Meaning, what he did in verses 5 through 7 is that he actually was acting honorably, virtuously, and it was really just some past reports that he, uh, of, of mismanagement that lost him his job. Those who would take this position would say that in verses 5 through 7, what this manager was doing was he essentially, normally he would receive a certain cut or percentage from the collection of, of a debt. And what he's doing then in verses 5 through 7 is just refusing to take his percentage of the collection of debts. So his master really isn't out anything. The second option is to say that this manager's corruption actually comes from both verse 1, the accusations, and verses 5 through 7. Meaning this manager decided just to somewhat arbitrarily reduce the master's debt without his master's knowledge and thus again mismanaging this rich man's wealth. Personally, I think the latter option is probably the best reading. The percentages aren't the same in terms of the reduction. So if this is a, you would imagine he would have gotten an equal cut of each debt. And so that doesn't quite line up. But then we come to verse 8. Verse 8, which is really the most difficult part of this passage. And in verse 8, this master comes to this manager and commands or praises him for his shrewdness. Now that is not how we're expecting this parable to end. I think what we have to do is, is separate, on the one hand, this manager's shrewdness, that is to say his prudential planning for the future, from the means that he employed to get there. So what this master is doing is essentially praising that one characteristic that this man was strategic in thinking about benefiting his future self. But the master is not commending the corruption, dishonesty that, uh, that he employed. And so now Jesus, in light of this parable, gives a number of applications to his disciples. And these applications are essentially uh, three things. He commends them to be shrewd, to prudentially plan for their own futures. He commends them uh, to be generous and to be faithful. So those are the kind of the three main reflections that Jesus gives his disciples in light of this, this brief parable. And you'll see then in verse, uh, continuing on after verse 8, Jesus says that the sons of this world, meaning those who belong to this present generation who, who aren't part of the kingdom of God, they are, do a better job of exercising prudence than Christians, the sons of light. Jesus is reflecting upon the, the fact that, at least in his generation, those who had non-Jews, those who weren't members of, of the kingdom of God, oftentimes did a better job planning and being responsible concerning their earthly goods than those who were members of his kingdom. And then Jesus by implication, is saying that his people are to be prudential planners. Now, his main point is not that we need to make sure we're saving up for retirement and have a rainy day fund in our budget. That's, that's not his point. He's springboarding this principle onto a spiritual level, saying that we are to be those who think about the future in an ultimate sense, eternity, have our mind set upon 
what is to come. Most people would acknowledge it's wise and prudential to plan so that the last leg of our life is, is a good one. We can actually live and, 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 and uh, support ourselves. And she is saying, well, if everyone agrees upon that, how much more important is eternity? An everlasting age. So Jesus is commending this idea of prudentially thinking, planning about our ultimate future, which is eternity. Well, Jesus then moves on in verse 9, and he says that the sons of light, that is to say those who belong not just to this present creation, but also have a foot in that new creation, the age to come, are to make friends for themselves by means of unrighteous wealth. Again, this on first reading is somewhat perplexing. You can see that this dishonest manager essentially did this. Because in that ancient world, money was a means by which people created relationships. So you would have friends who were of equal footing with you, but then you had friends in high places, patrons, who would uh, you were in, in some sense obligated to, but they would then help help you out when you were in need, but then you also had friends who were beneath you, clients. And wealth, money, was a means by which you created the social, these social networks. And you can see that this dishonest manager did this very thing. He lowered debts so that he could create relationships with this peop these people who would help him in the future. So is Jesus saying that we are to use our own resources to create relationships with people so that they are then obligated to us. Remember that idea of reciprocity, which I mentioned a few weeks ago. Ancient world very much it was a world in which you help someone, they are then obligated to help you. Well, I don't think this is what Jesus is, is saying. I think he's taking this cultural practice, but then subverting it for use uh, in his particular kingdom. Because one, one thing that we see throughout Luke's gospel is that Jesus has a special eye towards those who are poor, disenfranchised. We also saw in Luke chapter 6, Jesus spoke directly to the disciples and said that they are to give, they are to be generous, but expect nothing in return. Therefore, I believe Jesus is saying that, yes, we are to use our resources in a generous way to make friends, but what is countercultural about what Jesus is saying is that we are to view everybody as if we're on equal footing. We are to give, we are to be generous with no strings attached. So he's taking a cultural practice, but then he's subverting it uh, for his own use. We saw him do this even a couple passages ago with the, uh, when he was dining on the Sabbath. It was normal to seek the places of honor. And he says, no, in my kingdom, you seek the lowest seat. That's the place of honor. He calls us to uh, be prudent. He calls us to be generous. But then in verses 10 through 13, he, he speaks this idea of faithful stewardship, uh, faithfulness in our service to God. And he addresses the topic of money on a number of, number of times in these verses. In fact, in verse 13, you see that he says here in Luke's gospel, that, that famous verse, you cannot serve two masters, Either love the one and hate the other, hate the one and love the other. Um, you cannot serve both God and money. 
Well, again, in their cultural context, there were instances where you could serve two masters. You could have two patrons. You could, a slave could have two masters. But Jesus is saying that in his kingdom, that is not the case. There's only one master allowed for members of, of his kingdom. Now, on at least two occasions, Jesus refers to money or wealth as unrighteous. Unrighteous wealth. Now, what does he, what does he mean by this? I think on one level, he's saying that money is in sense unrighteous, or wealth is in one sense unrighteous because it's common. It's not holy. It belongs to this present creation, meaning our hope of the new creation, the American dollar will not be the currency of the new heavens and the new earth. It belongs to this age. So it's common. Not that it's inherently evil or bad or wrong, it's just common. But I also think he, Jesus is saying that there's a particular temptation with money or really with other common things of, of this earth for them to become idolatrous. Not necessarily because there's something wrong in, in money itself, but because of our own hearts. We're sinful and we're prone to making something into an idol. Now think for a moment back at the beginning of creation and the order of creation that God instituted. When God created man in his image, God was the sovereign king over all things. And he creates Adam as his vice regent, his vice king, to be his uh, representative rule here on this earth. Adam was called to exercise dominion in a way that reflected God's benevolent dominion. And so Adam was called to have um, dominion and rule over all of creation. And thus the hierarchy, the order of creation was God, Adam, and all of creation. Now, what happened when Adam sinned? Well, that natural order of creation was reversed. Adam usurped God's authority. He believed in that moment that he knew better than what God knew. His word was better than God's word. So Adam usurped God. But notice who came to the top of this hierarchy. The serpent, a created being, was now at the top of the hierarchy of creation, so to speak. Because Adam then became a servant, entered into this covenant of sorts with the serpent and believed his word more than anything else. And so that natural order of creation of God, man, creation was completely subverted and reversed so that the serpent was at the top, Adam, and then Adam put God at the bottom. And really that's what we do when we sin. We reverse that natural order of creation. We make something that's good, something that's been that's a blessing from God, something that we are called to exercise dominion over as a means of serving and giving gratitude to our God, but then we make it ultimate. We put it at the top of this hierarchy and we become enslaved to it, as it were. And one, one way we can tell that it has reached the top of that hierarchy is when uh, we are not exercising dominion over it, it is exercising dominion over us. It has a control over our emotions, our time, our energy, our life. It's become, we're a slave to it. Another way to think about <clears throat> this idea of, of being a faithful servant of God that 
Jesus is exhorting us in verses 10 through 13 is using that, that uh, idea of a pilgrim that's used other times in the New Testament. Just as a pilgrim who's going through a foreign land, it's not as if they can't enjoy the local customs and cultures that, that is present in that foreign land, but they have to do so remembering that their ultimate, ultimate allegiance lies in their homeland, to their home king. Such is our life in this present creation. We, we shouldn't despise the common blessings of this earth that we share with unbelievers. I mean, that is one temptation that Christians have fallen into throughout the history of the church is anything that's common, anything that's not specifically holy is bad. But no, God is the God both of, of the church but also of all of creation. But we have to enjoy those things as a pilgrim, remembering that our ultimate allegiance and citizenship and affections lie in our homeland to our king. So in one sense, we can see that Jesus is instructing his disciples, instructing his disciples about what life in his kingdom is going to entail. He is calling them to, uh, to action. We also have to realize that the Gospels are still, in some sense, the stuff of the Old Testament. Just as when we read the Old Testament, uh, we don't want to neglect the moral imperatives the instances in which it commends virtue and condemns vice, it's not less than that, but it's much more than that. We also want to see how passages in the Old Testament testify to the mission and work of, of Jesus as he will, comes to defeat that ancient serpent. We have to read the Gospels through that same lens because the Gospels still belong in the Old Covenant. So yes, we need to consider it in terms of how it applies to our ethics, but we also have to think about what Jesus is speaking, how Jesus is speaking about himself, foreshadowing his own mission and work about what he is going to do to bring forth the kingdom for his people. And Luke is, if you remember from, from last week, Luke is continuing this theme of, of hospitality. Last week in Luke chapter 15, uh, we saw three different parables whereby that which was lost was brought back in, whether it be a coin or a sheep or the lost son. It's this theme of welcoming back in that, was, that, which, was, that which was estranged from the purse, the flock, the house. And Jesus is continuing that theme of, of hospitality because in verse 4, in this parable, the manager is concerned about where he will live after he's taken out of the household. Who will bring me into their home? Then in verse 9, Jesus applies it on a spiritual level and says that when we are generous, we will be received into God's eternal dwelling, eternal kingdom. And then verse 11, Jesus says that when we faithfully steward our earthly wealth, we'll be entrusted with the true riches, heavenly riches. There's this principle then that is being set forth that if we do these things that Jesus is calling us to do, we will be those who inherit God's kingdom. Those who are received into the eternal dwelling of God. We will be those who are entrusted with heavenly riches if we do the things that Jesus is saying we are called to do. So I'd like us to briefly then consider how Jesus himself fulfills 
these imperatives that he gives his disciples. So let's think about uh, prudential planning. Jesus, you can't really understand his mission and work apart from this concept. It's not as if Jesus came to this earth and he was 10 years old, 15 years old, 20 years old, and he just thought to himself, huh, I have a human nature. I'm in this, on this earth. What should I do now? He always was operating with the goal in mind. In fact, that's the only reason he came to this earth. He came to this earth because he was given this mission from the Father to accomplish, and that motivated each and every step of his earthly pilgrimage. And so he was always thinking and planning about the future. John 6, he says that he came down to this earth not to do his own will, but the will of his Father who sent him. Uh, in Luke 9, consider a few chapters ago, this big transitionary uh, moment in Luke's gospel, when Jesus transitions and he sets his face to go to Jerusalem, he knows that he can't just stay in Galilee his whole his whole life. He needs to go to Jerusalem to die on that cross. Think of Hebrews 12. Uh, author Hebrews says that Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, is seated at God's right hand. What motivated Jesus to go through that, that, that horrible agony on the cross, the shame that he experienced, the joy that goal of entering God's new creation, of being seated at his right hand. And this Jesus' whole life was a life in which he was focused upon that future goal. He was planning for that future. And for those of us who believe, we were that future. That goal, that mission, that future was redeeming a people for himself. And therefore, our salvation is completely bound up with the fact that Jesus himself prudentially planned. He had a mission, he accomplished it. We also see Jesus' generosity. I mean, in, in many ways, Jesus is the quintessential example of generosity. In verse 9, as we saw before, Jesus calls us in some sense to be generous with our resources. And Jesus, his generosity wasn't just one in which he was generous with the resources he had for 30 years of his life, but he literally gave of himself, both as an incarnation and crucifixion. He gave of himself in that he took upon a human nature, which in itself is a, a huge act of generosity. Living a life in a fallen world. But then he, as we'll be thinking about this Friday, Gave, of him, gave his life on the cross in our place. The forgiveness of sins could be made in no other way than by the death of God's Son. We deserve to be on that tree, but God satisfied his justice by punishing his Son. We also see that Jesus was a faithful steward. Uh, a faithful servant, excuse me. Again, in verse 13, when uh, Jesus calls his disciples that no one can serve two masters. If you think about that order of creation, that we all reverse constantly. 
worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Paul says in Romans 1. Well, Jesus himself was tempted to do that. Think about the wilderness temptation when Satan came out and tried to do what he did to the first Adam. He tried to get Jesus to elevate something in creation above God, his Father. He tried to get Jesus to serve and bow, uh, bow down to him. But Jesus stayed loyal. He continued to serve and prioritize his Father above everything else. And so we see in a, a very real sense that Jesus himself fulfilled these very imperatives that he gave his disciples. His whole ministry is one in which he was prudentially planning for the future. He himself is the definition of generosity. And he was the, the faithful servant of God, the faithful second Adam. And thus, as a consequence, he earned that eternal dwelling. He was brought into God's eternal kingdom when he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And thus he gives the right to kingdom citizenship to everyone who believes. So for those of us who believe, his performance becomes our performance. He becomes our substitute, our mediator, whereby we then are granted the reward that he has earned. We then are entrusted with the true and heavenly riches. We then are received into God's eternal dwelling, not because of our ability to do any of these imperatives, but because Jesus has done them on our behalf. So that's the good news of what Jesus is, is foreshadowing for us. And thus we are too, in a very real sense, called to believe, called to put our faith in Christ as our substitute, as our mediator, who promises to give us that right to God's eternal dwelling, promises uh, to make God no longer our judge, but our hospitable father, who longs to welcome us into his home. As we even saw last week with the, the parable of the prodigal. Therefore, we, we do need to hear and endeavor to live in light of eternity. We are called to be generous with the wealth the Lord has blessed us with. We are called to be faithful. But most importantly, we are called never to lose sight of Jesus himself, who did all of these things perfectly for us and for our salvation.